You are listening to the Ridgewood Church Podcast on a sermon series that will take us through the Gospel of John, entitled, Learning Jesus. While death, it seems to me, is the great enemy of the human race, it lies in wait for every single one of us. It hovers over the living And there is nothing more fearful and ominous than death. And for those left behind, it brings incredible suffering. Death is the enemy of mankind. But it's with the backdrop of that truth and that knowledge that Jesus makes this amazing fifth I am statement. I am the resurrection and the life. And the meaning of that phrase is stunning. It means that when you come to believe in me, you will never die. Ever. And so this morning, as we see God do amazing things, and we see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, I want to show you that eternal life is something that's available to you right now. And I want to encourage you. I want to motivate you. I want you to feel empowered by what I call the now nature of eternal life. So take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the Gospel of John. And we're going to go right to verse 25 in chapter 11. So John 11, 25. You can also take your... Bible that's in the rack in front of you and turn to page 897, that's where the passage is found, or go on your Ridgewood app and you can just type media and follow the prompts to the study for today. So that's John 11, verse 25. And what we'll do is we'll read 25 as a standalone because it contains the I am statement that we're studying today in the book of John, but then we'll fill in around it to bring out its incredible meaning. So let's begin with verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus is promising life. And this is one of the seven I am statements of Jesus. And what John is doing, he's chronicling these statements so that we would believe. To elicit belief that Jesus Christ indeed is the Son of God and is who he says he is. In this particular case, he's claiming to be life. And he's claiming to offer abundant life now. But in order to really understand what he's saying, context is everything. And the context here is that there is a near death of a loved one and some ladies are concerned. A loved one is dying and indeed will die. And so if we go back now to verse 1, we can begin to go through this narrative. Just follow me along and we'll get to that amazing saying, and I hope that it affects you this morning. So 11.1, John sets up the narrative. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. So there are the main characters. Mary and Martha were sisters. Lazarus is their brother. They lived in Bethany, which is a village just near the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the city 
of Jerusalem. This is the same Mary, the Bible tells us, that poured perfume on Jesus' feet in order to honor him and who was chastised then by our favorite disciple, Judas. And these ladies are concerned because their brother Lazarus is dying and they know enough about Jesus, they know where to go to find healing. So what this narrative really revolves around and the, the essence of it is that the women were on a quest for healing. Their brother was dying. They knew Jesus. And so they were going to send word to have Jesus come quickly. But the problem was is that Jesus was 25 miles away at this point. And so in that time, that meant a one-day travel there and a one-day travel back. And when word finally reached Jesus, one would think, that he would just hurry because he loved this family. But the narrative takes a strange turn, and there's a twist here in verses 5 and 6. The women were on a quest for healing, but Jesus waited for the right time. Their timetable was not his timetable. As so often happens in our lives, Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, that doesn't make any logical sense. Logic says he loved them, so when he heard, he got up and ran. But that's not at all what happened. He stayed two days longer. Now, one could interpret this as cruel behavior. One could wonder, like, what is Jesus doing? But what Jesus is doing here is he's eliciting faith, and he's loving this family in a way that is going to blow their minds. He's going to show them so much more than what they've been thinking, and he's going to show us his own power. So Jesus had a plan. His timing is the right timing. And when the time was right, he was now going to head to Jerusalem. And let me tell you, Jerusalem was not a safe place for Jesus. It just wasn't. And so when he told his disciples that we're heading back to Jerusalem, they freaked out. Look at verse 8. Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And you're going there again? Oh, these are disciples. So protective, but yet so clueless at times. But Jesus knew what he was doing. If you look down at verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that, what? You may believe. But let us go to him. What is this? This is a way to get his disciples to believe in him, He's eliciting their faith. It's so that you may believe. So now, the narrative begins to ramp up, leading to this amazing I am statement. And in verse 17, Jesus enters the scene. You can just see this crowd of onlookers at a Jewish service like this. It would have taken a few days. There would have been hundreds of people there. And you can almost see as Jesus comes with his disciples, just the 
the parting of the crowd and Jesus arrives. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now in order to understand this statement, I am the resurrection and the life, we have to figure out why four days is important. But here's a practical point I want to make, is that life emerges when we wait on God because his timing is right always. I have a friend who always said, God sometimes seems like he's late, but he's always on time. But he's rarely ever early. So he causes us to have faith in him. And that's what was happening here. Now, one thing we don't want to think is that Jesus did Lazarus in by not showing up in time. Because if you just look at that logically, with that one-day travel to and the one-day travel back, by the time word reached, the time that the word reached Jesus, he was probably already dead. And there was no way that Jesus could do a normal resuscitation, which of course, of course is, the, is the point of the story. There would be no normal resuscitation. And the reason four days really matters is because there was this Jewish belief that probably went all the way back to the time of Christ that a person's soul hovered over the body for three days and at any time could re-enter the person if it so chose to, but in the fourth day the body would have begun to decompose. And so what's Jesus doing? He's waiting for four days because then there can be absolutely no question at all about who did this thing. Jesus is about to display the power of God. And he's not leaving any doubt as to the power that's at work. And so what we see here is that while the sisters wanted him to come right away, while logically we would say, hurry up, you don't understand, why aren't you healing my brother? Jesus is waiting. Not out of a sense of being mean or punishing, but because the time wasn't right yet. And so I know that you and I pray for things all of the time. And we pray and we pray. We pray our hearts out. Sometimes it seems like it's never going to come or that God is never going to hear or, or react to us. But really what he's doing is he's simply waiting for the right time. And that's what was happening here. And that's what's amazing about this story. So Jesus offers life now, but the way he would offer it is in his timing. And if we're willing to wait, new life emerges within us. So, now we have a conversation. Jesus is there. He runs into Martha to set up this astounding I am pronouncement. Look at 20 through 24. So when Martha heard, I love Martha, by the way, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. She wasn't going to wait. Oh, well, and now he's finally here. She goes out to meet him. Good old Mary, you know, the servant, just stayed at home. Again, remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now that's a difficult conversation. That should be the book. But even now, she said, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha understands the concepts here. He knows 
she knows well enough that in the last day at the judgment that, yeah, her brother will rise. Like we all will who are believers in Jesus Christ. And we'll rise and we'll be with Jesus. We'll be glorified in our new bodies with Christ. She knew that. But Jesus wanted to show her something unfathomably better. Now, if we look through 25 through 27, we can see this. Here's the saying again. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then the question that we all must answer, do you believe this? And so she was forthright with him. If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Oh, wait a minute, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming in to the world. And so Martha was a believer long before this, but this is really interesting because what we're seeing here is that really one moment of belief brings eternal life. And those words, that, that question that confronted Martha is a question that confronts us. Do we really believe in Jesus? Do we believe in the power of Christ? Do we believe that he's at work in our lives? Because one moment here shows us that Martha is a believer. And so the question for all of us is, do we believe? Do you believe? Now, we could say, sure, of course we believe. We're, we're Christians. We believe that Jesus has the power to do this. But do we really believe that he has the power to work in the deeper recesses of our soul, in the deepest wounds, the deepest pain, the everyday mundane kind of life that we go through? Do we really believe that Jesus can intervene? The question confronts us. But what Jesus does here now in order to explain this now nature of eternal life is he takes this phrase, I am the resurrection and the life. Resurrection and life are two different concepts. First, resurrection is what Martha was talking about. So she's talking about resurrection on the last day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And, and Scripture bears this out. There is going to be a resurrection on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, for everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him to have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. And then in John 5, He said, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in tombs will hear His voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Jesus isn't teaching faith by works. He's using this as an example. But this is what's going to happen. People are going to come out of tombs. There's going to be a final judgment. We're going to be raised. And so he's saying to Martha, yeah, you're right. I am the resurrection. This is going to happen. But then he uses the term and life. And so that's different. Everyone who believes in me shall never die. What he's saying here is, I am life equals never die. Never die. And so what Jesus is offering is eternal life now. He's elucidating this truth that eternity is long and we're already in it and life is available to us at the moment of belief. But we as Christians sometimes are waiting to die before we can find this life. 
That's not what God intended for us. We are already indwelled by this kind of power. I love what D.A. Carson said. D.A. Carson is a great theologian. He said this, If the last half of verse 25 stipulates that the believer, even though he or she dies, will nevertheless come to life at the resurrection, the first half of verse 26 stipulates that the believer, the one who already enjoys resurrection life, this side of death, will in some sense never die. This is a reoccurring theme in this gospel. In anticipation of Jesus' resurrection and pouring out of the Spirit, there is the repeated promise that those who believe in Him will immediately possess eternal life. John 8.51 tells us, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Ordinary mortal life ebbs away. The life that Jesus gives never ends. It is in that sense that whoever lives and believes in Jesus will never die. Now, I don't know about you, but that's life-changing stuff. Because that takes that monster of death that hangs over us and changes it dramatically when we learn that we will never die. And the way that we obtain this is through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and what Martha's belief came down to is this, that Jesus came to die for sinners, that Jesus was, is the Son of God. So if you're, if you're one that understands that, yes, I have a sin problem, yes, sin is keeping me from a relationship with God, yes, I need Jesus to save me from my sin because I can't do it myself, then you can invite Jesus into your life, as Rhonda was talking about, to be your Lord and Savior, and then you can experience the now nature of eternal life immediately. Justification happens, and then your life is born out in a new walk with Christ. It's very, very exciting stuff. And that's what Jesus is offering here. And that question of belief in 26, do you believe this? The answer is, I do believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who has come into the world? If you've been fighting this, if you've been putting this off, if you think there's another way, I want you to watch what Jesus does now because raising Lazarus from the dead is an object lesson for the ages. You want to talk about an object lesson? This is a pretty good one. Now, here we are. We're at the scene. The Bible tells us that Jesus wept in verse 35. He was deeply moved again in 38. We don't know exactly why. could have just been identification of grief with the family. It could have been how he saw sin affecting his children and the world that he created. But the point there is that Jesus was moved. He cares. He's not separated from our pain and our joy. Whatever you're going through, Jesus is going through it with you. And then it happened. Here we are by a tomb that was probably hewn into the side of a, of a hill. Jesus prays this amazing prayer, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, thank you. You have heard me. This is 41 and 42. That's all past tense. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So, he, the Father's already decided, yes, we're going to do this. Jesus is praying this prayer so that everyone around him can be introduced into this intimate relationship he has with the Father. 
So this is no attempt at a private resurrection. Jesus is sending a message here that he is the Son of God, that he does have this kind of power. And then in 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. You can almost hear that echo around the rocks there. It wasn't, hey, just give us a minute. I've got to go inside. No. Lazarus, come out. What happened? Out stumbles Lazarus with his grave clothes on. Even the dead, when the Creator speaks, the dead hear him. Even the dead obey the voice of the Creator. You want to talk about power? You want to talk about raw power? Lazarus, come out. And you know what? You didn't have to nurse him back to health. How would you like to have been at dinner later that day with Lazarus? That would have been weird. But it probably happened. So here's Jesus sending this message. Four days dead. Resurrects Lazarus. Claims to be the resurrection and the life. And gives life now. Not later. Now. So the question then is, we come back here to our own lives, what does this exactly mean to me as I go tomorrow and I go to work and I take care of my kids and I take care of my aging spouse or fighting illness or depression or mental illness? What does this really mean to me? Well, the first thing it means is that power is available now for the follower of Christ. Now. And there are so many times when I... I just forget that, or I don't really believe it, and so I don't try to tap into it by even praying. And that power is just sitting there to be used, and the Bible backs this up. John talked about this in 521, for just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. Right now, life. And then in Revelation, John said, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. This is the overcomer. This is the one who is in the throne room of God that indwells you and has given you life now to overcome sin to deal with life the way it is in front of you. You know what opens the door and unlocks this power, I believe, is a simple prayer, help. Because that prayer is a prayer of submission. It is relinquishing power. It is relinquishing position. It is saying, I can't do this. I need help. And you know, if you're in a situation where you don't really know what else to pray, don't worry, God has that. But there's power there for you now. Secondly, this matters right now because eternal life starts now. You're already in it. You're in eternal life. So the reason I think this is important, aside from the, the salvation aspect, is that it gives us a different perspective on things. When we know that we're already in eternal life, we can say no to the things of the world that are not helpful, we can have an eternal perspective on life, and we can live in front of non-believers with a purpose and a goal, and we can serve God with reckless abandon. When missionaries in the field have been martyred, they're, they're, 
their goal and their purpose is, I'm going to live for Christ because I know I'm already in this. And so they're not afraid. Eternal life has already begun. We're already in it. There's incredible power for you. And this, you will never, ever die. You will never die. Paul said in, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The truth of the matter is, is that, yeah, your body will perish. It, it, it will, this side of Jesus coming back. But your soul, who you are, never will. You are never without Jesus. That's what Jesus said in John 8. Dangerous to pull your cell phone out in the middle of service. But I was just reading this verse before I came up here. This is Romans 14, 8 and 9. None of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and rose again, that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You're never without Christ. And this has been such a huge comfort to me because I agonized when I found out that Taylor, my son, had been shot and killed and laid on the floor while, while, while robbers walked over his body and he died alone. And I grieved as a parent thinking I should have been with him. I wanted to be with him. I don't want him to die alone. And then the truth began in these kind of verses where Jesus was saying, don't worry, he was never alone. Never. And he never died. And so that's where, for me, this stuff hits the road because that monster of death just dissipates when we understand the truth of what Jesus is saying here. I'm the resurrection and the life. I called Lazarus out of the grave. And then finally, man, if we really believe this, we've got to go forth and make this truth known. We've got to. Because the world is dying in sin. And the only answer to sin is Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. He has the power to forgive sin. He has the power to give people eternal life. And so we need to get out there and we need to make him known. But the question for you today is, have you dealt with this thing called death? Have you given yourself to Christ? Do you believe that he is all of these things that this text tells us that he is? the resurrection and the life. Let's take a minute and just bow your head where you are and just, just be quiet for a moment and let God speak to you. And here are a couple of questions you can ask. Number one, if you are a follower of Christ, Lord, do I believe this? Help me to believe this. And what areas of my life do I need to enact this truth that I now have eternal life and the power of it? And if you're not a believer, now is the time to say, yeah, I want to give my life to you. I need you. I want to serve you. I want to be yours. So just take a moment and just let God speak to you. Thank you for joining us on the Ridgewood Church Podcast. For more faith-based resources or information about Ridgewood Church, visit us at myrwc.org.